Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, and when they were created, when Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. This is the first time the name Yahweh is introduced into Genesis. And notice that Elohim, God, means sovereign creator. Yahweh means the relational covenantal God. So Moses is now ready to marry those two things together. What point is he making? Chapter 1 has been mostly about God's sovereign right as creator over all things, king. Chapter 2, things are going to get a lot more intimate and a lot more relational. And so this Yahweh God becomes a transition. In chapters 2 through 3 of Genesis, Yahweh God is mentioned 20 times. It's only mentioned one time and the other places of the Torah, and only 16 times in the rest of the Bible. Which means for you to understand that God is Yahweh God, and chapters 2 to 3 is also important. Because this is where he begins to establish his relationship with humanity as their God and relational partner. But it's also where we break that relationship in 2 and 3. And this is where that idea is so important for you to understand, because that communicates to us that the primary point that God is trying to communicate in chapter 2 through 3 is an initiated relationship and a broken relationship. An initiated covenant and a broken covenant. That's the main idea. And in fact, this first toledot is chapter 2, 3, and 4, which means the narrator wants you to see the creation of humanity in chapter 2 just as connected to our fall in chapter 3. And so that's important for you to understand as we go into this. And so when this is the account of the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean this is the genealogy of the heaven and earth, because heaven and earth don't have little heaven and earth babies. Okay? The point is that this is what they generate. And what is the heaven and earth meant to generate? Humans, life, plants, blessings. But that's going to be lost through our sin. Then it ends by saying, the creation of the heavens and the earth, the day that God created the earth and the heavens. He repeats those two words in reverse order, bringing that all together. So now, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For Yahweh God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now you're like, wait a minute. Chapter 2 is zooming in on day 6, and it's a parallel. Okay, It's not meant to be chapter 1 happened and then chapter 2 happened. It's like the Synoptic Gospels. Mark is not the sequel to Matthew. It's a parallel. So in chapter 1, he gives you a kind of general God did this kind of picture. And then chapter 6, or verse day 6, he chooses to zoom in and get a lot more personal and a lot more detailed on what he did on day 6, reemphasizing humanity as the most important thing in creation. And so the first thing he wants to tell you is, I'm sorry, I messed up. When I told you that plants came before humans, now I'm telling you that plants came after humans. No. He's not saying that. This is why this is not a scientific account. Because that scientifically does not make sense. The word shrub here is like the wild shrub brushes that are out in the wilderness. And the word plant refers more to like what you plant and cultivate and grow up to eat. The point of what he's saying is, in this garden, in this place that God is going to put man, there is no intentional plants or life growing because there is no man to cultivate it. The point is not on a scientific, literal idea that plants and all this stuff came after humanity. 
where he said the other way before. The point is, there's no humans to intentionally make life grow. There's no humans to make life grow. Then he says, in the field and the plain. The word field refers to the desert, and the word plain means to the dusty ground that is great for planting things. So the idea is that, yes, there may be literally plants out there somewhere in the creation. It might be very beautiful because God said it was good, and God doesn't just say, and let there be plants and little teeny little things pop up. And then he created man. Yes, it's all there. Day five told us it was there before humans. The point is that there's no humans to intentionally make things grow. For humans to carve gardens, for humans to add their touch of creativity of God to things. And therefore, ultimately speaking, it's almost like there are no plants because what's the point of having plants if humans aren't involved? Which elevates the idea of gardening big time. And so that's the point that is being made here. And there's no rain to be found in the earth. Some people take this literally, that the first time this is mentioned rain, and the next time we see rain is in like the flood, and everybody's like, oh, it didn't, the first time it rained ever was in the flood. Where does it say that? Just because it mentions rain here and mentions it again in the flood doesn't mean he's scientifically trying to make a point that it has never rained before. The point that might be making is there was no rain yet as a judgment on humans. And there's no rain in the sense that it doesn't really matter if it's raining or not because there's no humans to plant or cultivate anything, so what's the point of rain? All these words are not meant to develop a logical point. All these words are meant to develop what's the point of creation when there's no human? What's the point of it all? And notice how what immediately is going to fall up with that is, let's create humans. He's setting up the pointlessness of creation without humanity. Because it says, there was no man to cultivate the ground. He, he makes that point directly. That's the point. No humans. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And Yahweh God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So springs come out. And so there's this idea, remember, chaotic waters is chaos, and springs and calm waters life. So the garden is ready for life to come. It's going to provide for them. So Yahweh God yasard man. Okay, yasar is the Hebrew word to like what a potter does. A potter gets his hands on the clay and he gets intimately involved and knows in everything God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. But now when it comes to humanity, God intimately touches the earth and he intimately forms humanity. There's a more personal nature here than with the sun, the moon, the stars, and all that kind of stuff. And he forms humanity out of the soil and he breathes life into humanity. Now, most of the time when you see the breath of life here, this is completely different than the breath as in the Ruach of God, the Holy Spirit. This just has the idea of life. And most of the time when you see this word, it refers to humanity. It's not really used of animals a lot. So there is a sense with that breath, he's distinguishing humans from animals. But there are places where it is used of animals. So it's hard to say that that's, we can be hardcore on that. What mostly distinguishes Humans from animals, not the breath of life, but that we're made in the image of God. That is our primary distinction. 
It is not our createdness that makes us unique from animals. It's the purpose that God has given us that has made us unique from animals, and therefore the value that he gives us. Just like a $1 bill and a $20 bill are exactly the same value, technically, when it comes to a piece of paper, but we determine that one is more valuable than the other. And so God is doing the same thing. Now, it's a lot more than just that, but for the sake of the analogy, God is what's giving us value. God is what is assigning us purpose and meaning. And so he breathed life into it, and he formed man out of the dirt. Okay, the point is that God's breath is bringing life. That's the primary purpose, the primary point, that life can only come from God. Okay, now, this is significant. The word Adam in the Hebrew is Adam. It's one of the very few words that we didn't like change the pronunciation when it came into English. Okay, so the word Adam is man. Adam right here is not a personal name. Adam just means man. Okay, in, in chapter 1, when it says he created Adam, male and female, that's obviously referring to all of humanity, not a personal name. Here, it's not a personal name. It doesn't really become a personal This is when it first becomes a personal name. It's still not being used as a personal name, like his name is Adam, but we do get the sense that it is personal name because he's talking about one specific human that he's creating. It really becomes a personal name in chapter 5 with the genealogy. And so we're kind of moving from this general humanity sense in chapter 1. We're getting very specific to a very specific first human here. And then it becomes a very personal name as we know him as, as Adam, as we get into 3 and 4 and 5. The word for the soil that God took Adam. Now, the word for land is Eretz. Okay, we already talked about that. But the word for soil pulling Adam out of the soil is this word. In the Hebrew, it is Adama. So God literally takes Adam out of the Adama and gives Adam authority over the Adama. And he breathes Adam into the Adama so that he may rule and subdue the Adama. And eventually Adam, when he dies, will return back to the Adama. God is literally linking us together. We are meant to be connected to the soil. You literally are rulers and subduers of the soil because you have life breathed into you and there's a link there. There's a link. And that's why all of our life comes from the soil. Even with modern day technology and grocery stores, everything is still a product of corn and wheat. Our only source of life comes from two places, the Adama and the breath of life from God, which means... The breath of God into Adam and the soil into Adam, we become the link between heaven and earth. We're the ones that keep them together. So why is it called the fall? Because when we sinned against him, we became separated from everything. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 3. We lose our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, other Adams is broken, and our relationship with the Adama is going to be broken. Because we are the link meant to hold everything together. And I know God holds everything together, but yes, but he passed that off to us, so to speak. Not literally in finality and we don't need him anymore, but in a join me kind of a sense. And so we are the link. 
And this is very important for you to understand because this is why God has every right to bring more lives out of the Adama and then return us back to the Adama when we sin. Because we are the Adama, except the breath of life in us. And so we become the link. We become the mediator. We become pulling everything together. And all of our life comes from God or the soil. Does that make sense? This is why it's very important for you to understand when they enter the tabernacle, the tabernacle has walls and a ceiling. The one thing that they didn't put any man-made thing in the tabernacle was the floor. And the priests were required to take their shoes off when they entered the tabernacle because Adama was meant to be connected to the Adama as it came into the presence of Yahweh. This is why when Moses comes to the burning bush, where God is dwelling, God says, take off your shoes because it's holy ground. Because since God is right then and there, that little parch of soil around the burning bush becomes the garden. And Adam gets recon- or Moses gets reconnected to the soil again, which he had once lost because God is there. And God's creating a tiny little garden right there in that place. Okay, And this is why that theme of taking off shoes is so important in the Bible. And the soil and the land and the promises. God's linking everything together. And we're not like the Hindus and that kind of stuff where everything is God and everything is the same. But we're not to be completely divorced and separated as Americans. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. God's going to nuke the planet one day. No. There is an intimate connection that we're supposed to see there on a relational level but not going so far that you start seeing yourself without distinction. Don't make the mistake of losing distinction between you and everything in creation, but also don't lose the mis- make the mistake of losing your similarity and your connection to everything in creation. And this is what God's trying to communicate. And man, humanity, became a living being because God breathed life into him. So Yahweh God planted an orchard in the east, in Eden. And there he placed man, and he formed who he had formed. And Yahweh God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at, and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now, I know we're used to thinking that the garden is called Eden, but if you really pay attention to it, the garden is not named Eden. It's the garden of Eden. Notice that Eden is a territory, and we're told that God built a garden in the east of Eden. So, and we know that Eden is not the entire earth. So you've got this giant earth, which is the whole marker board, and then there's this territory on the planet called Eden, and then east of Eden, he plants a garden. So it's the garden of Eden. Eden is, the garden is possessive of Eden. And so that's important to understand. We're told that God placed humanity where the word placed in the Hebrew there has the idea of rest. So he's just as God entered in and rested, he places humans in the garden to rest with God. And the word garden means a fenced in park. Now don't think of like a park like taking your kids to play in the jungle gym or going to feed the ducks or the geese, the rats with wings at Sharon Woods, okay? 
Think of garden more like the secret garden or when kings would build these gardens and, or the botanical garden or Da's Arboretum out towards the east. Oh, east. So um, think of that kind of a garden. A garden meant to be beautiful. A garden meant to grow things, not just to like play around and have fun. Not that you can't have it there, but the primary purpose is to display beauty and life, not just playing. And the word garden means a fenced-in park or a fenced-in arboretum. So this is very significant for you to understand. This becomes like a fence. And he places humans in it. The only time, the time that you see this used a lot is a king would have a palace and then he would build a garden usually to the east of his palace. Because in the ancient world, east was good because that's where the sun rise. And the west is considered bad because that's where the sun set. That's why in Egypt, all the good gods are on the east side of the Nile and all the bad gods are on the west side of the Nile. Okay, they had the idea of opposite side of the railroad tracks too. So the idea is that God's got this like temple here and the garden is an extension of it and connected somehow. And so this is the idea. We know it's not good so the garden provides everything that they need. Every tree, life. God just says, you may freely eat of everything. So here's the thing. If this is the temple, and he places humanity in the temple, then what's the only thing that serves in the temple other than God? They know what they're called? Priests. But remember, Adam and Eve were commanded to rule and subdue. What's the only thing that rules and subdues? Kings. So by giving us the command to rule and subdue and then place us in the garden, he is making, making us kings and priests. Now, what's the purpose of a king? The purpose of a king is to make sure that everything stays good. And if anything is not good, you deal with it in a righteous way. The purpose of a king is to rule to make sure that everything remains righteous, right? We may not use that definition, but deep down inside, that's what we hope from our presidents. Uh, we are voting for the president that we think is going to make everything righteous, just, good. What's the purpose of a priest? A priest is a mediator. They're one who links, connects you to God and connects everybody else to God. You become the one that goes to everybody else and teaches everybody about God because you know God. And then when everybody doesn't know God or they've hurt God, you make them right with God. Later after sin, it'll be through sacrifices. You're a mediator. So they're meant to make sure that everything stays good in creation. And then as priests, they're to make sure that everything in creation has a relationship with God. And you're like, well, if everything's good, then how hard is it going to be? I don't know. Somehow a serpent became corrupted and entered into everything and threatened it. We're not told how he became corrupted. We're not told why. We're not told where he comes from. All we know is that God created the serpent and called it good. And in chapter 3, he's no longer good. Don't know why, but we do know that Adam and Eve are supposed to function as king and priest. They're meant to make it good again, and if necessary, redeem the serpent. But they don't make it good, and they don't redeem the serpent. They join the serpent. This makes their sin so bad is that they're not just sinning against God. They don't even love the serpent enough to redeem him, to rescue him. 
They did not function as a king, and they did not function as a priest. Therefore, they lost the right to be kings and priests. This is why God comes to Abraham, sorry, Moses, in chapter 6 of Exodus and says to Israel, if you obey me, then I will make you a kingdom of priests and a royal priesthood. He wants to restore king and priest to them, but it's conditional on obedience because we lost it because of our disobedience. See, all these ideas are connected. All these ideas are connected. And so it becomes a fenced-in place that they dwell. Now, here's the thing. Is it good to be in the garden? Yes. Is it good to be outside the garden? How do you know that? Because God put them in the garden. But how else do you know that? Because when he kicks them out, that's really bad. Yes. Now, well, just keep that in mind. I don't want to get ahead of myself. How do you think they knew what they were supposed to be in that garden? Because they had a relationship with God. Because God is a relational being. He's a teacher. He's a counselor. He is, when Christ comes, that is God. And Christ explained and taught and communicated things. We're not told about all those conversations. But when God says, when you eat of the tree, you will die, they have to know what death means. Or that's an empty warning. If you tell your kids, if you touch that, you're going to be bunked. They're like, well, what does bunked mean? Just don't do it because you don't want it. That's not a good parent. Because the consequences are empty to them. So there's a whole lot of things that God's been teaching them that we're not told about. Remember, there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't tell us about, of what's going on here. We don't even know how many days there are before, between their life and their fall. It could have been years. We have no idea. So he puts them in there. He placed man that he had formed, and God made all the trees. Now, there was a tree of life. The tree of life brings life. And it literally brings some kind of a life, and it might even bring eternal life, which means man is mortal. And if man doesn't eat of the tree, man will die. Now you're like, well, how does that work? I don't know exactly. All I know is when they sin, God says, we must kick them out of the garden so that they will not reach out for the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Which means there was something to that tree literally providing the cure for death. Which means this. Death isn't just all of a sudden it came into everything because we sinned. Death is already there. Because what you must understand, the definition of death is not the ceasing of life. Because when people die, do they really cease to exist? No, that's called Hinduism. And atheism. When you die, you're still alive. You just go somewhere else. So what is death then? Death is separation. And God says, on that day when you eat of the fruit, there is no word for surely or very in the Hebrew. So your Bible says, surely you will die. And the Bible, the way they emphasize something is by repeating it. So God says, on that day when you eat of the tree, dying you will die. It's going to really happen. But did they immediately eat the fruit, go, <clears throat> kick over backwards dead? It was like 900 something years before they finally died. But did they die? Separation. Death is separation from God, and death is separation from your body. Listen, I know that when we go to heaven one day, it is going to be awesome. You're going to be reconnected to God. 
You're going to be good. There's going to be no sin between you and him. You're going to be walking in the cool of heaven with him. And everything is going to be good except it's not. Because you were meant to be body and soul. And you're still dead. I know we think of death like, oh, it's a horrible thing that we fear. But you don't have to fear because you're in Christ. But we also think, yay, can't wait till I die and go to heaven. I mean, there's that tornness. But it's not going to be all perfect in heaven. And I know that sounds blasphemous, but (laughs) because the reality is death is called a curse. And the only way that you're able to go to heaven is because you're dead and dead is not good. Because now a part of you, your soil, that your material part is rotting in the soil. And yes, it will be more awesome than here because you'll be with God without sin and you'll be in a good relationship without sin, but you're still going to be an incompleteness to you that you're going to feel because a part of you is not there. When you think about going to heaven as the final destination, that's called Gnosticism. And you're unintentionally making the mistake that this is all bad. And you want to escape it. And when you go to you die and you go to heaven, everything's going to be good again. Which means you completely ignored the theology that he kept saying that this is good, 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 good. And now that you're dead, that's bad. You need to understand that Paul and Peter and James never looked forward to the day that you would go to heaven as the ultimate goal. What they looked forward to as the ultimate goal was your resurrection. And Paul even says, as Christ is the first fruits from the dead, he becomes the example, the model for us awaiting our resurrection. Because in your resurrection, you're experiencing a death right now where you have sin. You experience an ultimate death where you did not know Jesus Christ. You had not the Holy Spirit. And that death was slightly overcome with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there's still a death here. There's suffering. There's sin. Then when you get to heaven, that kind of death is going to be gone and everything's going to be great, but you're going to be introduced to a new death, a separation of your body and soul. And then you're going to long for your resurrection when your body is brought back from the Adama and breathe the life into again and combined with your soul. And on that day of your resurrection, that's where everything is going to be good again. And I don't want to make heaven sound bad because it's not. The Bible makes it, uh, heaven is awesome. But I also don't want to fall in this mistake that heaven is the goal. The goal is being back on Adama again and God walking with us on Adama. That's the goal. That's the goal. The goal is not heaven because you're not connected to Adama. See, right now we're not connected to heaven, but we're connected to Adama. Then we're going to lose the Adama and go to heaven. Then we want to look forward to Adama and heaven and man all being joined together. That's the goal. That's what we look forward to. That's what we preach. That's why Paul says without the resurrection, Christianity is futile. Both Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. And it's very important for you to understand because there's just so much more than going to heaven. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in an awesome way. There's so much more than just going to heaven and losing your body. And you're missing a part of yourself. And so, God, this is not good. So, we're told 
That's the tree of life. Tree, there is a sense of death that you will be separated from God if you leave the garden. That whatever grows in the garden helps you stay connected to God. What does that mean? I have no idea because I wasn't in the garden eating of the tree. None of us were. I just know that there's something to it. And when, when that tree reappears in heaven on earth, and we're told that there's two trees of life on both sides of the river, we're told it's for the healing of the nations. Well, if everything's good again and Christ came back and there's no more sin, then why do the nations need to be healed? I don't know. <laughs> but there's something more to the tree of life than just a tree that produces fruit. There's something more there. Now there's also the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now if the tree of life literally would bring life, then the idea is the tree of knowledge will bring you some kind of knowledge. And so knowledge of good and evil. Now the good and evil, what is good and evil? It's wisdom. It's synonymous with wisdom. Is having the knowledge of good and evil good? Yes. How do you know? Because God says, now they've eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they have become just like us, knowing good and evil. Therefore, it's good, or you're calling God bad. And Solomon was praised for his desire for wisdom. We're told to be wise as serpents and gentle as a dove, as by God. Jesus, James says, when anybody who seeks or prays for wisdom, God will be faithful to give it to them. The whole book of Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We know that God wants us to have wisdom. And wisdom and knowledge is not just a knowledge sense, it's an experiential sense. It's the ability to discern, it's to be able to read things correctly, and it's to be able to make things right. See, wisdom is not just knowing right and wrong. Wisdom is being able to look at things and discern whether things are right or wrong or good. And then wisdom is also the ability to make things right again, to fix the situation. Okay, that's wisdom. So he puts this tree of knowledge in there and says, don't eat it. Now here we have. Is the desire for the tree bad? No, because are we supposed to desire wisdom? Yes. So everything in the garden is good, but God says, don't eat that one. God says, I want you to have wisdom, but don't get wisdom. You're like, oh my gosh, you're totally contradicting yourself, God. This is frustrating. It's like having two bosses. Okay? What's going on here? Why would God put a tree in the garden and say, that will give you wisdom, and wisdom is good, but don't go to the tree for wisdom? Exactly. Remember, everything is good, but not everything is beneficial. Is there anything wrong with sex? No. Where are you getting it, though? The source. Is there anything wrong with drugs? No. But where are you getting it, and why are you getting it? Is there anything wrong with language? No, but how are you using it on people? The knowledge is good. Everything that God created was good. But the tree presents the option to get wisdom from something else other than God. It's not that that thing is bad. It's that you're walking away from God to grab that thing that becomes bad. Well, why would God do that? Free choice. Here's the reality. When you were a little kid, some of you might have a, te a teddy bear or something, and when you squeeze it, it said, I love you. And that warmed the cockles of your heart. Okay, it made you feel all warm and squishy inside. And then eventually over time, when you pushed that button, it didn't quite do it for you emotionally anymore. Why? Because it was programmed to do it. You realize that when you became, got a greater concept of reality, 
That teddy bear wasn't saying it because it really loved you. It was saying it because it was programmed to. And you begin to realize that the love, the relationship, was now completely empty without the choice to have it. Nobody wants to be in a relationship with somebody who's paying them to be in a relationship with you or forcing them to be in a relationship with you. There's actually this mother when I was growing up who actually paid somebody to be a friend with her kid. And once he found out, it became very empty, <laughs> very meaningless. You have to have the choice. You see, how do you know that people love you? Is when that there's other options out there and they choose to be with you still. When there's maybe cooler things that they could be doing on a Friday night, but they want to do it with you. That's love. But they have to be able to follow through with it too. You're like, well, why can't they just make the bad choice and God then stops them so that everything doesn't screw up? Because all that matters is what you did here. Remember, you can sin in your mind all day without doing any actions. The sin was not in the taking. That just became the ability to put to action what they already wanted. And you have to have follow through. If somebody says, hey, do you want to go Olive Garden or McDonald's? And you say McDonald's, and they say, no, Olive Garden. You want ice cream or cake? I want cake. No, you're going to have ice cream. Do you really have a choice? Eventually, you're going to realize that you don't really have a choice. It's just guess what they want. So you have to be able to follow through. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is not bad. It's just an alternate source. And here's what it really comes down to. Sin is not behavior. Sin is autonomy. And autonomy is a Greek word for self auto law, pneumos. Sin is when we decide that what I think is right will be right and what I think is wrong will be wrong. See, right now, God has exercised His autonomy by saying, tree of life, good, tree of knowledge, bad. When Eve steps in and says, no, I think you're wrong. I'm going to declare the tree of knowledge of good and evil good. That's sin. And we think about it all the time. Every choice that you make that we call sin really comes down to the fact that God said one thing and you decided to define it a different way. And then that makes us selfish. And that is the heart of sin. The heart of sin is the question is, will you come up to this tree and truly bow before me as God and say, that is not good because you said it is not good. And I love you so much that I'm going to go to you for the wisdom because that is good. Because you are the king of the universe and you declared it so. And I love you so much, I will accept your definition. That's called a relationship. But when you come to the tree and say, no, I am the authority. And I've declared this good and I don't care what you think. That's called sin. And that's a lack of relationship. And that's why people hurt us. Because I said, this hurts me when you say this. And somebody says, I don't care, I'm going to say it anyways. Whether they intentionally or unintentionally, they communicate that idea. And that's what God is presenting. He's presenting a choice. Because without choice, there's no free will. And without free will, there is no true love. There's no real relationship. Does that kind of make sense? And so everything in your life comes down to 
Do you accept God's definitions? And do you love him enough to find your source in him and not in alternate things? Do you go to the bottle, the television, the tub of ice cream, movies, friends, to find your sense of good, comforting? Or do you go to the God to find your source of good, comforting? All those things are good in themselves because God pronounced them good. But when you make them the ultimate, that's when it becomes bad. As St. Augustine said, it's all about prioritized love. There's nothing wrong with all your loves. It's how you prioritize them. That's the important thing. And so this is what God is presenting here. 